This program is brought to you by P1 Australia Racing Components, the designer of the oil heat mats for dry sump tank applications. Find out more about the truths on engine oil heating at p1australia.com. You love supercars and keeping up to speed sometimes means hitting the rev limiter? Welcome to the Gates Rev Limiter Podcast. After each round, we unpack what happened. Join Andrew Clark. We've paused a fraction and got it right, and they probably still would have won the race. I mean, and yours truly, Neville Wilkinson. These are the heady days when Ford was spending megabucks for all the action, all the controversy, and sometimes a little emotion. The Gates Rev Limited Supercars Podcast. Subscribe now on Apple, Spotify, or where you listen to them. Thunder Media. Hi, I'm Chas Mostert. Hi, I'm Shane Van Gisbergen. And you're listening to Inside Supercars. From the racetracks across Australia, and here's Inside Supercars. On this episode of Inside Supercars, we talk to Paul Marinelli about going to Singapore and racing overseas in general. Barclay Nettlefold's dream of taking this thing around the world with fleets of cars all over the planet and all that sort of stuff, which I can't make any sense of for the life of me as that what that would all cost and how that would happen. I, you know, and whoever told him that that would be a good idea really needs to get their head checked. We also speak about being a driver manager and how it's changed over the years and why social media has become a more important part. For, for any driver from the top, from the front to the back, being on top of this social media is extremely important these days. Paul Marinelli joins us on Inside Supercars and it starts now. Welcome to Inside Supercars, Tony Whitlock and Craig Revelle and we're joined by a man who's travelled the paddock and the world at large, Paul Marinelli. A.K.A. P.M. <laughs> <laughs> How very original. <laughs> Hi, Tony. Hi, Craig. Love, love, lovely to be with you. Your name came to my mind when all this talk about Singapore came up again. And as you would probably be aware that uh, Barclay Nettlefold has a particular penchant for being on a big stage. Um, <laughs> he, of course, wasn't there during our days of China and Abu Dhabi and Bahrain's and Texas and all those sort of things, but he's got in his mind that Singapore is where we should be. Now, I know you have been going to Singapore and working there in an announcing capacity and also event capacity because you are a man actively involved in the, the parts and automotive business. Tell us about your experience about Singapore and what you think of the idea of V8s on the streets. Well, you know, it is without a doubt one of my favourite uh, motorsport events, not only Grand Prix, but as a general motorsport event and a full-on entertainment event. It, there really aren't too many better than that. I think Vegas is going to give it a good run for its money, though, this year. Um, but it's just a, a very energetic, amazing event. It's been 14 years now. It's hard to believe it's been that long. I think I've worked at about eight or nine of them to date, uh, including last year's event. And uh, it, it's it's... 
always sold out. It's always got a fantastic vibe to it. The concerts are just mind-blowing. The money that they spend on bringing all these world, um, these world class level uh, performers there, even as support categories. Like I remember um, last year that um, the, the, the support categories were bands that you, and singers that you'd think, you know, uh, uh, would be, you know, the headliners at other places. You know that that was the sort of the sort of money that they invested to bring these artists in, who would never ever normally go to Singapore because there's not enough um, revenue to be made to include it on a tour. But because the Singapore Grand Prix and the Singapore government pay them so much, um, they go there. And you know, I've seen the Killers there. I've seen Katy Perry there. I actually got to meet her, which is pretty cool. Um, and a whole number of different '80s bands and and current bands, just incredible. So the entertainment side of it is unbelievable. Now, even on the motorsport side of things, it's full on as well. Uh, and in the past, they've had like TCR Asia there. They've had um, Formula 2 and Formula 3. They've had the Ferrari GT uh, category race there. They've had GT Fanatec GTs race there. Um, and there's the, this year, they've even got Porsche Carrera Cup Asia and the Thai Super Series. They call it the Super Series, but it's actually the Thai Super Series, which is a G- combination of GT, GT3. Uh, GDA cars all racing together. So there's plenty on, and I, I just wonder where you'd fit supercars in that equation. And, and while I'd love to see them there, the question's got to be asked, will it really make a difference to that event? Because it's already a sellout, no matter what they do. And I don't see how, you know, from the Singapore Grand Prix side, I don't see how it makes their events bigger or better because it can't get any bigger. It's It's bursting at the seams as it is. So that's my question about it. I'd love to see the supercars there because it's a, it's a great street track. But um, honestly, I don't know where you'd fit them. I don't. The paddock areas are so limited in size. It's uh, they struggle with the support categories they have now, and uh, supercars needs a lot more room than what they've got there now. Let me tell you. So I, I don't know. I'd love to see them there. I just don't see. Maybe it's the businessman in me that just doesn't see the uh, the commercial side of it making any sense. Given the size of Formula One cars now compared to our supercars, I mean, the ca- our cars would obviously fit around that track. I mean, I remember hearing some years ago when it was being mooted that supercars or V8s, as they were then, going to Macau. Now, I've walked Macau track. Our cars would not fit there, particularly the new big ones. Um, they, that was just a ludicrous idea in Macau. But they would obviously fit on the Singapore street track. Oh, without a doubt. The Singapore track, you know, for all intents and purposes, it's very much like Albert Park. Even though it's used on public roads, they're wide, beautifully spaced out, lots of runoff, you know, as much as you can get from a street circuit, but extremely wide. You'd fit our cars, no problem whatsoever. I think the heat would be a bit of an issue, though. Would the Singapore Grand Prix be paying for supercars to come there? I mean, okay, a lot of people like them at the Albert Park race, but, you know, the idea of taking the 24 cars up there for uh, uh, the Singapore Grand Prix just seems such a far-fetched idea. Um, yes, they would have to pay for everything, uh, just like the Australian Grand Prix pays supercars an almighty fee for them to appear as well. That's not done for free either. In fact, nowhere is unless it's a V8 supercars, or sorry, a Supercars Australia promoted event. So if you look at the um, the Grand, Singapore Grand Prix, the costs they'd be up for would be all the freighting, all the accommodation for all the crews and drivers, support staff, TV crews, all of that would need to be covered, plus 
the fee that the teams will get for appearing there, the sanction fee, if you like, and that would be split up between all the teams. Now, unless that is a sizable amount of money, I don't see why any of the teams would really want to go. And I've always maintained with this or any other overseas race, and as you mentioned in the intro, we've been to places like China and America and and Bahrain and Abu Dhabi and all this stuff, and feasibly... You know, did it work out? It might have in terms of an appearance fee, but it certainly didn't work out for those specific venues in terms of making a return or whatever. Even though for some of them, that really wasn't what it was about. It was more about getting their tracks up to license spec and that sort of thing. That was certainly the case in Bahrain. But you know, the reason why these events aren't continuing now is because they don't make money. Now, they need to spend a lot of money. So the only way I think I would support any international racing for supercars, despite with the exception of New Zealand, would be if there's a stack of money in it for the teams, right? A stack of money, not a little bit, a lot of money. That'll make it worthwhile. Now, how many countries are willing to pay that sort of money? Maybe Singapore are. I don't know. Um, maybe other places are. I really don't know. But I, I don't see why this sport should be going anywhere except in Australia and New Zealand unless there's a heap of money to be made by the teams and some extra prize money or appearance money for the drivers as well. The drivers sign a contract for the championship and they only get paid for the racing they do as part of the championship. So it doesn't matter whether the championship becomes five rounds long or 50 rounds long in extremes, mm. of course. Yeah. And having been a, a driver manager, and, and I still do now, Dave Russell, but in the past with, with a number of others, and... You, you do your contract, suddenly a new event gets called up or I, th- I can't remember, you guys will remember before I will, but there was an event that put up a heap of money for like a winner takes all $100,000 or something like that. They announced that I think it might have even been Adelaide um, at one of the races, but I'm trying what to think. What you're thinking anyway. of is you were thinking of Tony's, like the Winston Millions, where Tony said, we're going to have a grand slam and if he could win Adelaide, Sandown, Bathurst, Gold Coast, you would get a million dollars. And, of course, the thing with that was as soon as Garth Tander ran Adelaide, 20, probably back in those days, 27 drivers didn't give a rats about the uh, $1 million because only Garth Tander could win it. Yeah, and so this idea, but the, the point I was trying to make is that this gets announced out of the blue. Your contract doesn't cover it. So you need to sit down with your team again. All right, and in that case, it was a very hard price to get. But let's say someone else says, oh, it's $100,000 winner takes all, a bonus or whatever, or whatever it may be at one of these international events. You then need to sit down and renegotiate with your team as to who gets what in terms of prize money. Now, you can't be greedy and expect it all. You know, you split it with a team or whatever. But many of the teams, I remember them saying that, you know, once the deal was done, bad luck. You're, you're our contracted driver. You're not getting paid anymore. You're not getting any more prize money. And, and you know, the, the lack of a driver association here is the big problem too. I mean, they've always been too tight to represent themselves properly with proper legal representation and so forth. And, of course, as a result, these things happen. So, look, we're a long way off from that happening now. But if it did happen and if um, Barclay Nettlefold's dream of taking this thing around the world with fleets of cars all over the planet and all that sort of stuff, which... I can't make any sense of for the life of me as that what that would all cost and how that would happen. I, you know, and whoever told him that that would be a good idea really needs to get their head checked. Uh, is, is you know, if that happens, well then, yeah, renegotiations need to take place and the drivers need to put their hand up and say, hey, you're making us do, do all this extra work. We need some more money. I actually think what you're remembering is when supercars had Sandown and Bathurst's enduros. 
and they'd signed up their co-drivers for the Enduros and all of a sudden they announced that the Gold Coast would become a two-driver Enduro and all the co-drivers who'd been signed for the co-drive to co-drive had to do Gold Coast virtually at no fee. Well, it's a very, very similar situation this year, Craig, when they, well, last year when they announced Sandown was back and all of our endurance deals, like Dave Russell's deal at Erebus, for example, it was only for Bathurst. So, of course, we had to sit down together and make sure that and it didn't take long, but, you know, because they're a great team to deal with and uh, and we got it done straight away. So, but at the time, you didn't know when you signed your deal. So, you know, there's things like that that are changing all the time. You just need to be a bit fluid and you know, what I like is that if the sport's healthy, it's a good thing. You know, if there's money coming in and it's healthy, it's a very, very good thing because it's been lean for a very, very, very long time. And uh, I hope that changes. And you brought up the Drivers Association, of course. You were working with Frosty the last time they had a serious push for a Drivers Association. And this time we've seen a, a, a strong core group of drivers that are at the top of the supercars tree all trying to put something together and it has been fascinating that after an initial push and surge the uh, relationships appear to be getting strained once again with supercars and I think one of the great things this time Paul is that we don't have those team owners saying join this and you're sacked. Yeah, and that was going on. There's no doubt about it. There was uh, a lot of push, you know, very much like, you know, if you do this, there's going to be problems for you. Or, you know, uh, if you do this, we may not consider re-signing you or whatever, you know. And a lot of it, it was rubbish. And, and, and it was also illegal, quite frankly. You can't say to someone that they can't, you know, make a, a driver's association or a union. You just can't do that. You can't stop them from doing that. And it was like when they said they were going to put in a salary cap for the drivers. Now, in AFL, it's a gentleman's agreement. It is certainly not employment law. It's actually against the law. <laughs> you cannot restrict the, the earning that somebody can make from whatever they, they are doing. It, it's illegal to do that. But you can make a an agreement amongst everyone that you will not transgress and you'll be fined if you do. That's their own agreement. But in terms of the way the law operates, you can't say to someone, this is all you get paid and no more. It's actually against the law. So that when they tried to do that, that got shut down very, very quickly by a couple of drivers' lawyers. Um, but it certainly wasn't from an association. And even now, yes, I hear noises. They're trying to do something. But to me, to have it done properly, you need, you know, gun lawyers. You need someone from the outside actually running it, not a driver, because you're never going to get them all to agree with each other. And the last thing is you're never going to get them all to pay the cost to run it, because that, that's what killed it the first time is what I'm sure will kill it the second time. I mean, we're talking about a group of people that needed to be forced to get life insurance in order to renew their racing licenses. That's the intelligence we're dealing with here, sadly. Given at times, Paul, that you had a much larger brief, you've been commercial manager at ProDrive Sickford, um, and uh, uh, you've had a, a, a fair-sized portfolio. Um, Dave Russell is your sole driver now, and obviously you have contact with Erebus. What sort of state do you think the series is in? I mean, obviously... Gen 3 was a massive financial cost to the teams, but uh, it, it appears to be working. The fields are competitive. There's new people winning. What do you feel of the state of the nation, so to speak? 
Well, speaking with sponsors as I regularly do, and a number of deals that I've brokered in the sport over over recent years, there's a there is an air of excitement as to what an air of excitement as to what is happening. I think the way the Gen Three process, and you know, you know, it's just stating the obvious, uh, came into play, and the things that have happened along the way, you know, that's certainly been an almighty mess. But they will fix it, and and it's getting there, and and the show is going to be better as a result. It certainly has been good. I mean, let's face it there has been quite a lean towards the Camaros in terms of the way it's been but it will get there and it will get stronger the cars sound great they look fantastic they look like real race cars now not not like sedans as they used to and as much as we used to love that the sport did need to move on and yes I think it's it's good it's it's a lot more positive than it was uh, the number of sponsors that supercars are attracting as a series is beyond belief it's almost every week they're making a new announcement so that shows you that it's all heading in the right direction I I think the free-to-wear situation needs to be addressed, that that is the only thing holding back from even bigger money rolling into the sport is in the fast-moving consumer goods and stuff. We need to do something about the free-to-wear exposure of the sport. Uh, Australia, sadly, is one of those countries that is just stubborn and you can't get past that 30 or so percent that will take on pay TV and, and no, the rest won't. They just reject it. And it's interesting, this hasn't happened pr- practically anywhere else in the world. They've all just gone to the pay TV networks, but but that hasn't happened here. So And that's where the sponsors want, need us to be on free-to-wear as well. So a bit more of the free-to-wear than what we have. Once they get that balance right as well, I think the sky's the limit. But the, the one thing I do have that I think needs to be done is more events in Australia, of course, and New Zealand, and bigger, better events at that, right? Now, what's kind of happening is this is focus on going all over the world when our show here is nowhere near where it should be at the moment. Places like Geelong, regional centres that should have amazing motor races would be fantastic places to do them right um that's what we should be focusing on and i hear that's what they're trying to do which is a good thing and um let's hope they do that because getting the show right here and in new zealand is the absolute priority then think about everything else when you're out there talking in the commercial world about supercars about the free-to-air pay tv mix what are they telling you about the balance we've got the four races that are on free-to-air throughout the year, what are they saying that it should be? Should it be 50-50? Does it need to be 75, you know? Even if it's a delayed replay of all of them, you know, that's that's probably probably the ideal situation. Let the pay TV networks go live and let them, let the free-to-air run the whole thing, you know, on a delay maybe the next day, that, that night, whatever, as long as you've got it. Uh, at the moment, it's way too low, way too low. And without those numbers of those uh, anti-siphoning events, of five of them, I believe, without the numbers of viewers that just those five events attract, the figures for the sport would be appalling, absolutely appalling. Thank God we got those because that's the only thing that gives, that brings those numbers right up. Uh, yeah. And Bathurst in particular, of course. Yeah, well, Bathurst is its own beast, isn't it? It's a, it's what Melbourne, the Melbourne Cup does to horse racing. It, it skews the figures so uh, significantly that you really need to look at it with and without. Well, that and the Grand Prix, they're the two that do it, that that take the figures to skyrocketing levels that that every sponsor that looks at that is impressed. But when they look at the rest of the season and, and 
you asked, you mentioned about what the commercial guys is kind of saying. These days, you've got younger, educated marketers. It's not like you know, 20 years ago or 28 years ago when I started out in, in, in doing this. Um, you had people who did it because they loved it, right? They didn't do it because of marketing-based, you know. Some of them did, not many. They did it because they loved it and it worked for them, right? It increased sales. It gave them exposure that they wanted to their direct market and so forth. These days, if your numbers aren't right, these educated guys who are in marketing roles now and ladies and, and everyone else who, who are doing this are looking at those numbers and saying, no, nope, they don't stack up, not for the money you're trying to get, which is 100% true. Because if I wanted to do a major sponsorship on a supercar team, let's say a top, top 10 supercar team, and I wanted to do a major sponsorship, I could have an AFL team for less money than that. And the AFL team is going to get me a stack more coverage, <laughs> multiples of more coverage, you know, which is what Fujitsu ended up doing when they pulled out of supercars. Yes, they went to Essendon, and look how that's gone. Hey, Paul, interesting about that and talking about the new marketer and the new corporate uh, buyers, if you like, of of events and, and sponsorships. I know that there are certain drivers in Australian motorsport who actually are at the top of their field in their motorsport, but what the people are really wanting to buy from them is their influence, is their social media numbers. Now, how has that been uh, massaged into the supercar world? Well, from the limited experience I have with, with particular drivers in it, yeah, look, a very important part of it. And and you've got to be on top of that social media side of things these days, of course, because the sponsors now say, okay, um, how many races do you do? How many people are watching on TV? How many people are live streaming? All that. How many Facebook followers do you have? How many Instagram followers do you have? Um, uh, how many things do you promote? Who do you promote? All that. So they, they look at all that stuff. So, yes. For, for any driver from the top, from the front to the back, being on top of their social media is extremely important these days. As important as the autograph these days, Tony. I know that we haven't had a chance to speak to you on air, but you were, I think, the only Australian journalist in Las Vegas for the launch of the Las Vegas Grand Prix. And towards the beginning of this interview, you spoke about how you think uh, this Las Vegas Grand Prix is going to just knock the socks off anyone who's there. Can you give us a bit of a feel of what that launch was like and what you are expecting when that event does finally take place? It was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen in my life. Okay, so I think that's that's and that's not exaggerating. That launch, uh, it was incredible. What 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 had happened? Just to give you a bit of background, I was working at SEMA and Apex at big trade shows. There was I do most years for my clients, and through those years, I've got to know obviously the Las Vegas um, um, uh, Board of Commerce uh, and Trade and so forth. And it was through that link that I got invited to the launch. Right, so I said, "Oh, you're media, you do motorsport, don't you? Yeah, why don't you come to the launch?" And I went, "Oh, you don't have to ask me twice." <laughs> and uh, and it was on the Saturday night after the uh, the end of the SEMA show. So I was still uh, booked to stay. Um, I went over and um, this was just mind-boggling. It was the Garden uh, the garden of the Gods, which is the swimming pool area, the private swimming pool enclosure area of Caesar's Palace, which was huge. It was only 500 people. That's what it was limited to. And the Killers, 
being from Las Vegas, of course, their hometown, did a concert for us. <laughs> and you had the um, you had David Croft and uh, Naomi Schiff hosting the whole thing, and Domenica Stefanali was there, um, and uh, uh, the Las Vegas mayor and the um, other dignitaries there, and they set off all these fireworks. And then there was this massive drone show that did a Formula One car in the sky coming down to land, and all this flames coming out of everywhere. And that that Garden of the Gods has about it's surrounded by about oh, a couple of hundred statues, very very high up. So probably you know. Over, I don't know, 25 metres up on these pillars. Now, each and every sing- single one of those uh, statues was dressed in a race overall and helmet and gloves. <laughs> and they even had dinosaur things breathing fire and they were dressed with giant helmets and, and racing suits as well. It was it was mind-boggling. Uh, they had Formula One cars suspended in the pool, um, just sitting on top of the water. It looked like they were just sort of floating there. Um, there was anyone who was anyone, you know, I suppose in the Vegas um, uh, business community were all there. It was incredible it was an amazing night and then the after party just went right off which is at the uh, at the uh, nightclub there at caesar's palace and uh, it was it was incredible and i just thought if this is the effort they're putting in just for the launch could you imagine the combined efforts of all the major casino companies and the las vegas uh, uh, board of commerce uh, commerce and trade and of course the u.s government what everyone's throwing into this for tourism it's just going to be incredible just Mind-boggling. I can tell you right now, it'll it'll make you know it'll be like Singapore, but ten times more spectacular. I I reckon. Certainly sounds like there's a different approach to the last time there was a Las Vegas Grand Prix, which you, myself, and Tony are certainly old enough to remember. Mm. I got asked over there by many, uh, several Americans because, you know, F1's quite new to them. And, and as I was watching um, Lewis Hamilton and a few of the other guys doing burnouts up and down the um, the strip, that happened before the launch, right? So all the public are on the streets. And, and I'm thinking I could have walked down this very strip, you know, a year before and mentioned Lewis Hamilton to somebody and they wouldn't have known who I was talking about. Um, the same with everyone else in Formula One, you know, Max Verstappen, they would have had no idea. They they really, really do not like F1 in America. And of course, Netflix came along with Drive to Survive and changed all that pretty quick. And now there's three races there that you couldn't move in that uh, street display that, that happened in Vegas. And of course, the launch and everything. And now the tickets are selling like absolute crazy, even though the costs are just mind-blowing. Uh, ridiculous. But, but good on them if they can get it. <laughs> You know, Paul, um, as well as I and Craig do, that uh, in our time around this thing called supercars, that V8s before that, that there was a time when Cochran would talk about V8 racing was number three sport in Australia. There was a time it was, you know, behind AFL, ARL, NRL rather. But of course, there hasn't been any of the promotion of the series. There hasn't been anything that excited the people. And quite obviously, there is an, op- an opportunity there, and it, all it needs is somebody not to be thinking about flying cars to a bloody race in Singapore, really, but to make this series, get people interested in the series again, as it was. And you you know full well that Tony Cocker and I didn't see eye to eye, but the one thing that he did do was excite the series. He built uh, imagination and lots of entertainment around it, and that's what's missing at the moment. I'm sure you'd agree. It's in the doldrums. It needs exciting, and boy, let's get a showman in there to get things moving. 
One, 100%, Tony, 100%. I, I, I agree with you. With uh, with Tony Cochran, we had a guy who was, you know, he shot from the hip and did all sorts of crazy stuff. But in terms of promotion or as a promoter, he, there was no one better, no one better. And, you know, I wish that he'd think about, you know, if there was the opportunity of coming back now that he's uh, got, got out of his AFL duties and uh, chairman duties there at the Gold Coast Suns. And it, it'd be great to see him back in action. I, I remember asking him that myself when he turned up at Bathurst one day and he just went, nah, nah. Those days are long behind me, Bobby. And look, fair enough, because he, when he left, this sport was higher than it ever been. And, you know, I can remember being at meetings because, as you know, I've worked with a number of race teams over the years and I've been in meetings with him there and he just would not tolerate this small-mindedness that would come from various team owners, um, not willing to listen to what needed to be done. And he just shut them down. He just basically said, leave it to me and I'll make you all millionaires, you know. <laughs> he was 100% right, you know. And, and the only other person he reminds me of in doing that is Bernie Eccleston because he, he faced a lot of... Uh, objection from Formula One team owners or garageists, as they were known as the time. And look what he did. Well, you know, I, I think with Cochrane, he took a sport that was people bringing cars on trailers and rolling them out dressed in their tracksuits, because that's the first supercar, touring car, sorry, races I went to uh, in 95. And then in 96, he, he came on board and the supercars thing happened. And the changeover was almost immediate. I mean, it was him that said, everyone must be in uniforms. Everyone must have a professional transporter. You know, all those things that had to be right in order to be able to promote it the way he wanted to. And and look, by at, the, at its peak, he had one of the highest selling uh, music artists in the world, and still to this day, Pink, as an ambassador for the sport. I mean, that's just incredible. You know, and, and some of the things that, that happened were just truly amazing. And as you say, it was in the Australian sport top three and solidly there for a long time. Indeed it was, Paul. Thank you so much for joining us on Inside Supercast. I remember when I started in 94 covering it and I committed myself to do it full time and did it for over 20 something years. But the thing I was amazed at, it took four or five years for the series to become what I thought it already was. You know, being down in Simmons Plains and seeing sort of like a dozen cars there and it was not much big time, but it did happen. And uh, unfortunately now it's in the doldrums, I hope full well, because there obviously is a product there that can be made and made well to excite people, and I just hope it happens. Thank you very much, Paul, for joining us on Inside Supercars. Paul Marinelli, guru of the sport and somebody who knows the commercial side far better than most of us do. Thanks, Tony. Thank you, Craig. Good night. Inside Supercars is produced by Thunder Media. Tune in next time for more. Or lock in the podcast on your iTunes or mobile device. Search Inside Supercars. The views expressed on Inside Supercars, including the panellists and guests, do not reflect the views of the network, Thunder Media or Sport Radio. Any publication or rebroadcast of the show without the expressed written permission of Thunder Media is strictly prohibited. You love supercars and keeping up to speed sometimes means hitting the rev limiter? Welcome to the Gates Rev Limiter Podcast. After each round, we unpack what happened. Join Andrew Clark. Sort of paused the fraction and got it right, and they probably still would have won the race. I mean, and yours truly, Neville Wilkinson. These are the heady days when Ford was spending mega bucks for all the action, all the controversy, and sometimes a little emotion. The Gates Rev Limited Supercars Podcast. Subscribe now on Apple, Spotify, or where you listen to them.